0: Bradley J is right on target.
3: Hey, you're either right or you're wrong. And I'm right. He's right. What do I like? Guns, dogs, freedom, you know. He's right. What makes me crazy? Giving free stuff to lazy people. He's
2: right. And I know
3: what you want.
2: Just what is it that you want?
3: We want to be free to do what we want to do without being hassled by the man. Do you
0: expect me to believe you don't know what's right? He's right. J talking. You're right. With your host, Bradley J, he's right on
3: target. WBZ 28 degrees, you are Jay Talk, and welcome to the Fool. I'm glad to have you with us. And we have with us an insane man. Are you, Mike Donovan, how are mad you? Madman, yeah. You're that's a mad what the man. guy
0: in the Globe called me right away. He you, says, You're a madman. You
3: are a madman. You are a, a distinguished and awesome comedian, stand up guy, and I don't know, more importantly, you're writing the history of everything all at once. That would be kind of accurate, wouldn't it?
0: I'm up to 26 books. <laughs> okay. So I, on on uh, February 4th, I was on with uh, Dean, and I set a goal for 50 by Christmas. I don't think I can make it. I think I'm going to make at least 35. But these are all legitimate books, these and I'm leg- going to try to find somebody to contact the Guinness Book of World Records and get me in All right. for so, the most history books in one year. Not the most. I'm sure somebody has published more books, but not history books.
3: Right. And... The newest group of books is a nine-volume history of World War II. It's a
0: nine-volume history of World War II. Each book is a year, and it's called The History of World War II, 1940, 1941, except from 39 to to 45, that's seven books.
3: All right, just as amazing as the books themselves is The Endeavor, is what you are attempting to do overall. Share that with us.
0: Well, the whole thing started uh, with the, I thought I could publish a general history of the United States, and that was all I was trying to do, and it just grew and grew and grew over the course of 14 years and the, to the point where I had all these manuscripts and everything was divided by administrations, and I got to the World War II section, and I finally, just a couple of years ago, I said, well, this is my strength anyway, so now it's time, so for the last couple of years, I've been really buckling down and expanding you know, see the, all of the other books are divided by American history strictly. So you ha- I have a book called, say, The USA in the Time of uh, William McKinley, The USA in the Time of John F. Kennedy. But when I got to the World War II, I divided it up into... It Basically, it turns into world history, not American history, for nine books.
3: All right. Now, Mike is an established comedian, and I want to actually reestablish that for some who may not uh, know him. Can you please, for, for everyone, to talk about your your comedy career first, and how it affects the way you write, because it does. Uh,
0: Well, I think comedians, as a rule, uh, generally they're not... It's an irony, it's a paradox. They're generally not readers. However, they are great writers. Almost all of them. Even the opener is a good writer, the middle is a good writer, because you can't do stand-up comedy... Unless you're writing correctly, the audience will react to bad writing immediately, and you'll get nowhere. So even though they're not scholastic in nature for the most part, comedians tend to be excellent writers. And they're usually iconoclastic, they're usually introverted, and they definitely do not like authority. They like to be independent. This is the stereotype, and I think I fit the stereotype. And going back into my early 20s, I decided decided that... I'm not the only comedian that could do this because we comedians tend to think in a certain
3: way. What way is that, by the way?
0: Well, it's just a little cynical. You're sitting back and you're seeing the nonsense that's going on and the things that are floating in the back of someone else's mind, but they're not quite sure what they want to say. And you come out and nail it and everybody laughs. Yeah, that's what was bothering me in the back. It's a no nonsense, no frills. You can't have verbal diarrhea as a comedian. It will hurt your jokes. Yeah. It will destroy your jokes. So you
3: have to be concise so, and edit and all right. that.
0: So no matter how much I think I'm breaking away from stand-up comedy, that influence is always there.
3: And for those of you across the uh, U.S., this, this is certainly relevant to all of you, but beyond that, this is world history, not just uh, something that is applicable to all citizens, but this is World War II is world history. I mean, there's a, there's a nine-volume history of World War II just written by Mike. We were talking off the air. As as folks do, and it came up. People love World War Two. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, a strange it's thing to strange say. Thing, yeah, yeah. But I it's love, true. Worst I love that World. Worst thing ever War hap- yeah, worst thing that ever happened. I love that. I love it. So think about that for a moment, and we'll go to Dan first in Winchester. Dan, how you doing, Dan?
1: Hey, how are you, good Dan? I I, I wonder if uh, Mike recognizes my voice. I know who you are. Oh, yep. plant! And 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 of course, what I wanted to hear was some humorous stories about the Russian front.
0: No, tell your story.
1: <laughs> well, no, we it started with a Facebook conversation that we had had. I trying to remember the original story that we were commenting on. You had posted something about the Russian front,
0: right? Uh, he told he put on Facebook that. Uh, he never understood as a kid why Sergeant Schultz was always terrified to the Russian front. Oh, well, he was right. terrified see? and I didn't understand it either. It was like you know war is war. you know what's the difference where you, where you go? you know the Russian front and, and I when he posted that, I posted back that uh, I had the ex- I had written the exact same uh-huh. thing in one of my books that so. when I was a kid I didn't understand. Why Schultz was so terrified of the Russian front.
3: All right. Well, there's a good chance to address that. What, what was it like? And you said we could and should talk about the Russian front. So make us understand what that was like and the hell of it.
0: Well, for a German soldier, their chances of getting back was about 1 in 20 just to get back alive. As simple as that. You know, so it was the, by far the worst place you could have been. Where was uh, the
3: front Exactly.
0: It was Jay it went all the way from the Baltic to the Black Sea? It was the largest engagement of, of two military forces in the history of the world, and it lasted for three or four years. It was the most fantastic. It's ironic because it's this is the heart and soul of World War II, yeah, was the Russian front. Mm-hmm. Yet, including me until recently, most people who consider themselves World War II buffs. Actually, know very little of it because mm-hmm. it's so daunting. You, see, you, know, you look at Italy and Sicily and North Africa and Guadalcanal; These little theaters are self-contained. They're easy to follow as a scholar, as a reader, as, right. uh, just for, uh, for the fun of it. But the Russian front, you have to look at that and scratch your head and go, time to set a couple of weeks aside just for starters. Well, what was Before going you-
3: on there? What created the front? Why did it exist? And why did it exist there?
0: Well, the Germans and the uh, uh, Russians had divided Poland, which actually hurt Russia because Russia had advanced its frontier considerably to the West at the expense of Poland, which was ostensibly a good thing, except now you have a common border with Germany, which you never had before. Yeah. So there you go. So now, all the way from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Russians and the Germans... Uh, are opposite each other. And Romania has joined the, uh, the German side, so that's the same situation, the two of them. So Germany decides to invade. And the interesting thing that I've learned recently is that the, the common uh, perception of the first year of the war, 1941, is that it was a hot knife through butter, that the Germans just marched all the way. In some senses, that's true, but what consistently was coming back to the German high command was These people are crazy. This isn't France, this isn't (laughs) Poland. These people are fighting like madmen. And instead of trying to break out of pockets, they're pushing soldiers into pockets, which is saying that we have no intention of surrendering even though we're surrounded. We're actually trying to force feed outside troops into our pockets, and the German high command is saying, we've never encountered anything like this before. Uh, they were fighting to the death. They were fighting like the Japanese on Guadalcanal and Saipan. And uh, history doesn't remember this quite as much as I think it should, because like I say, the whole front is so wide and varied, and they start throwing names and places and rivers. It's a hard study, and you have to really say to yourself, i got to get this done. And I'm going to read not just one or two books. I'm going to read six or eight books on the Russian front just to get a good feel for it.
3: Can you get a good feel from it from your Oh, yeah, sure,
0: sure, sure. Because I'm a general historian, an introductory historian to begin with. No matter how much I know something in depth, I'm always going to give you a general short version of right. it. Sometimes I only know of general short version, and I pass on what little I know. But sometimes even when I know a lot, a good historian that knows a lot about something knows how to condense their best thoughts into a short
3: segment. Like a comedian, oh sure. The phrase is uh, "armies are always fighting the last war." Was the Russian front an example of this? Was this was this trench warfare, uh, or was it was it a stalemate sort well, of situation?
0: A very little stalemate. What was your for the last war? That's a good one because that was that was definitely true because Hitler was sure that the first of all he had a bad experience in World War One in assessing the Russians. Here he is on the Western Front. He did four years in the trenches. Four long years that poisoned his right. soul. whatever good was ever in his soul, you know. It was, but he's observing that the Russian army in World War One was it just did not perform well at all, so he thought it wasn't anything to fear. And then at the end, and when they fought Finland in 1939, the, the Russian army performed poorly again, so now he's thinking. In his mind, the, the, the German high command tried to warn him a little bit, but even they generally were very foolish about how Russia was not capable of resisting this. They, they, they thought that they would have Russia pretty much conquered before the snows came. Right. And when that didn't happen, it was all over.
3: The idea of armies fighting the previous war, it happens over and over again. For example, the British were still fighting a previous war when they fought in America. And it was a different war in America, but they were still fighting the, the old war, and it, and they suffered. And I think the same thing happened to us in Vietnam. Jim and Newburyport, report. Hi, you're on WBZ with the Madman, Mike Donovan. How you doing?
1: I'm well. How are you, gentlemen? Hello. We are well. Okay. Um, I'm in the car tonight, but it's a funny coincidence that. I record, and every night I go to bed watching the uh, steady diet of the odd couple Hogan's Heroes with a little bit of uh, <laughs> all-in-the-family mixed in. Um, I, I love Hogan's Heroes. Uh, I recently read a couple books. I, I want to say the first one's named Angry Voices, and the other one's called Human Smoke. And I recently learned that there was a sizable anti-war movement um during World War. You know, I knew that we were an isolationist country at, at, at the time, and uh, Pearl Harbor changed everything, but uh, Charles Lindbergh was one of the spareheads sure. of the anti-war movement.
0: And he was also anti-Semitic, actually. Yep.
1: I, I read that he made some they filled Yeah, they
0: filled Madison Square Garden with 30,000 uh, people given the, the Heil.
1: Well, <laughs> I, I think those were socialists, mostly, and the socialists were very much against the war during the, you know, while the. Uh, oh, no, those were uh,
0: national socialists that were in the, we're, we're talking about. Okay. Oh, okay. no, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm mixing up with the bun. You're correct. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so. Before- but the, but they, the,
0: the America Firsters were pretty right wing and they were leaning in the direction. So I'm not entirely off base here. The, the, the Amer- Charles Lindbergh and the America Firsters were not socialists. They were, they were strictly, they, they were from all walks of life, they were strictly America First. All
3: right. So, Fair enough, Jim. Thank you.
1: Okay. Have a good night,
0: guys. Talk to you real sure.
3: soon. So have you given any thought to why everyone, quote, loves World War II? Well, f- most
0: probably because it was the last time people could duke it out with everything they had. After World War II, everybody had to keep their nukes in their pockets. You know, once the nuclear uh, weapon came into the equation, now we can't wage full-scale war anymore. It's the first time in history that any country has to fight a war and not give it everything they have. So so that's as far advanced as the battle of nations ever advanced. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but there were moral questions that were clear-cut.
3: Right. There's no self-doubt.
0: There's no self-doubt, and I also want to say this is a big change for me personally. You know that famous picture of the Reichstag where the the Russian soldier is holding up the red flag on on May the second, nineteen forty-five. I spent my whole life seeing that picture, and seeing a negative. I just said, well, what's the difference? You know, Stalin, Hitler, they they enslaved East Europe. How many people did Stalin kill? What's the difference? I see that flag, and I think. We should have beaten them to Berlin, that classic argument. I, I, I didn't get a good feeling from that picture ever in my lifetime. But I've been studying the Russian front, and I've been studying their contribution, and I've just, you know, I don't take back anything I've ever said. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly to the right of that guy in the uh, Dr. Strange, or the, the Flouridge, you know. Yeah. You know, I, I'm pretty much to the right uh, on uh, Russian relations from 1917 on. I'm extremely right. right. But you got to say what you got to say. God bless the Red Army of 1944, 45 If they hadn't been there, Hitler would not ne- we never could have beaten Hitler. They beat Hitler. And I've just reached a point where, you know, in spite of the fact that they committed mass rape and, and they uh, starved their own—30 million of their own people and, and Stalin was a brute, I see now that picture and I see the good guys won. I see there's no more—for me personally, there's no more moral equivocation between the Nazis— And the Russians and the Soviets. To me, the the Nazis were by far the bad guys, and all things considered, the Russians were indeed the good guys. And if it weren't for the Russians, God knows what would have happened.
3: I'd like to ask you this: What made Hitler feel like he could take and hold so much terrain and territory? Logistically speaking, that has to be pretty difficult. Germany's not huge. Uh, how could they possibly do
0: it? Well, racial conceit is what created Hitler, and racial conceit is what destroyed Hitler. You know, they basically thought that all other races couldn't fight, and they underestimated the Russians. It's pretty simple. And the French made their contribution to this confusion by rolling down like dogs and and making the Vichy deal. Yeah. This gave Hitler the idea that this was going to be a pattern elsewhere. So he thought that, you know, once he got into Russia, right. everything would collapse and he could arrange some sort of a Vichy deal in Russia. Mm-hmm. If the French wouldn't fight, he's certainly not expecting the Russians to fight. This man was not well traveled. He hadn't he hadn't known many Russians mm. in his life. Right.
3: Also, you mentioned that in World War One, his experience with the Russians were that they were not that uh, formidable Successful. a foe.
0: Right. He so, was only looking at the record. He wasn't in the trenches understanding that they were a tough bunch and they were good soldiers. He only saw that they had a poor performance mm-hmm. in the war Right. from a distance.
3: What, in your opinion, is the reason the French rolled over like dogs?
0: I think Sorry, of France. It, a lot of it had to do with it's not visceral. I would I would move to France if I had the money. I, I love going. I love, yeah, it's not visceral for me personally. Some people, are, oh, those no good French, we saved their backside and they're not great. I'm not one of those people. Right. Uh, in fact, I, I have French heroes. Uh, Paul Reynaud was the premier in France during the fall of France, and I love him. He's great. He's he's the greatest unsung hero of World War II. A politician that stood up to the Nazis while the, the storm was coming, stood up to the Nazis when the storm broke and everybody else was collapsing, thrown into a Vichy prison, thrown into a Gestapo prison, but then after the war he became a politician that the Americans weren't particularly fond of. Or, or, you know, it, part, that's part of why he didn't become a famous person, because then he became a French politician. And, you know, Kennedy and uh, Eisenhower didn't necessarily like him that much, and people forgot about his record. And so anyway, the point being that... With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.
0: Uh, the French had no right to—when they surrendered, they created Hitler's opportunity to attack Russia if, if Germany had been forced to even merely occupy. Right. They said, we'll take over occupational duties for you. We'll police our own country.
3: So and, they didn't have that, to use any resources at all.
0: So it, not only did it free the Germans to go anywhere they wanted militarily— but, you know, at the same time—and also, the Vichy government did not have to choose fascism, by the way. This is something that blew me away recently when I, they chose fascism. In other words, there was a corner of France, the southwest corner of France, Hitler said, you can run your own show in here, it's, auto- it's autonomy. They could have chosen a rather democratic form of a puppet government. They chose a version of fascism that was at least as strong— as the Hitler form.
3: Well, so totally aiding and abetting the Nazis by way of allowing them to use no resources to hold France and use them that's all right. in
0: Russia. That's a that's a big deal. So we'll police ourselves. So you imagine if France had resisted to the—part of it was this desperate need to save Paris.
3: I was wondering about that. D- were they thinking, we don't want our— lands are buildings blown up but that was a lot that was a lot of was it, it uh, now, the more i listen to you i'm thinking they had a, some people at the top who were kind of rotten and a probably knew it was inev- inevitable and maybe wanted to cut the best deal they could you're the historian very
0: fascinated all my life with this cuz i heard this as a kid i've been studying world war II since i was 12 i heard this as a kid many times and i just thought to myself that can't be so I always heard that, you know, there was such an element in France that loved fascism yeah. just as much as the Nazis did, that when the Nazis crashed in, the Germans crashed in as, as a military unit, they said, well, it's a shame that we've lo- we're losing this war, but they're instituting the kind of political philosophy and system that we've wanted for a long, long time. It's a shame that our enemy has to be installing it. Don't get us wrong. We don't like the Germans. You know, don't get us wrong, but there is a consolation prize right? Here because we've got our fascism, all right. and these people aided and abetted the invasion itself, even before we get to Vichy, France.
3: It's 617-254-1030, and it's 1240. It's Scott and Quincy. Hi, Scott. You're on the WBZ hey. with Mike Donovan.
1: Hey, great show. Always love to hear about World War II history. What's up? And, uh, hey, there was a talk about little-known World War II things, Uh, the Treaty of the Atlantic, uh, which I believe was... The Atlantic Charter? Yeah. Yeah,
0: 1941. That's basically an outline of the United Nations that was eventually adopted, so it was a very important meeting.
1: And one of the consequences, I think, that we're dealing with today is the Americans, our government, wanted the, the world... The European powers to give up their colonies in the rest of the world sure. and set the stage for all sure. of these countries to become independent. Is that?
0: Yes, and that was a very complicated problem because Churchill and de Gaulle, de Gaulle didn't have much ground to stand on because of Vichy, which we talked about, but the British had a big problem with Roosevelt because Roosevelt was very strongly anti colonial. And so he, even before the war began, wanted England to get rid of all its Britain to get rid of all its, its colonial possessions in Portugal and other and other countries, and in the middle of the war, Churchill is saying, you know, I'm getting the feeling from you that we're fighting this war so that I'm going to oversee the disintegration of the British Empire when this ends, and I don't think I like this. And Roosevelt pretty much said, too bad. Right, and now. But it was did a it was a very about... ugly subject, and when it, it reached a point when anyone would mention India to Churchill in the presence of America, he'd get up and leave. Right, right.
3: Scott, My where do you generally some... get uh, get your World War Two fix? Do you get it uh, from, say, the History Channel or books?
1: Well, back in the day, you know, we watched things like Victory at Sea. Uh, yeah, that was great. You know, the, the Rat Patrol. Rat Patrol,
3: I was going to ask about The, the best no.
1: TV show. 12, 12 O'Clock High. 12
0: O'Clock High is okay. You know what the best, and it's not gory, it's it's nice. They catch you a break because it's old school and it's not gory, but the best military TV show that depicts small arms combat is combat. I was going to say. That is oh, yeah, that.
3: excellent. Kirby, Little John.
0: I mean, no, that's excellent. The people that wrote those episodes, they had war experience. You can tell. there was Like, for example... In combat, if, if you walk behind me, I turn around, I point my gun right at you. And yeah. then I go, okay. But if you were writing a movie now and you didn't know better, you would say, oh, no one's going to point the gun right at somebody. But uh, the people obviously knew that that was like, well, we just don't sweat that. We hear a noise, we turn around, we point our gun right at your chest. Oh, hey, Joe, how you doing? And then we turn it away. But with the with the sensitive atmosphere now, oh, no one would point a gun at anybody. But that's part of the little nuances that you see. That's interesting. But the small arms combat situations, it's really superb. And the, the good and character Vic development. Vic Morrow is scary. Vic Morrow. He's and, a scary dude. And
3: Little John had the Browning Automatic Rifle. Right,
0: right, right. He was the only one. Yep. Yeah, rifle squad. So, but
1: I mean, but here's here's the thing about that Atlantic Charter. Think about what that may, means to the way the world developed today, as opposed to if all the European powers had kept their client states. Like, for example, you go to the Bahamas today, which which remained a British client state for a long time. Beautiful country. Uh, you know, you, you look. Canada was a British client state for many years. Imagine all these countries in Africa and Southeast Asia and, and around the world if they had remained client states of the big European powers until they had a chance to to flourish, mature, uh, establish you know burgeoning economies before they got their independence. I think the Atlantic Charter caused a lot of these countries to get their independence way, way. And as a result, the, the mess that the world is in today can, can find its, its seed in that Atlantic Charter. Tell me if I'm right or wrong.
0: Well, I'll tell you one story about the Atlantic Charter. He made, Roosevelt made a lot of personal deals with Churchill, and he didn't tell anyone about them. And when Roosevelt died and Truman came in as the president, he had all these confusions because there were these deals that had been made that he, even as vice president, didn't know about it. They all went back to the Atlantic Charter. So FDR was always making very important deals with just a verbal agreement with Churchill. But they were right. thunderously important.
3: Scott, thanks a lot. Frank in Boston. Frank, you're on BZ. What's going on?
2: Hello, sir. Good morning. Hello. I- I'm just want to add... Um, you talk about um, why Hitler might have thought he could um, win this war. I right. think it had to do with because um, all the other players that joined in with him. Because I never knew that Romania, that's right, um, Hungary, and Bulgaria all declared war on the United States.
0: That's right, and Good they, point. that gave him a little more confidence, sure. But that that backfired on him, of course, at Stalingrad, because when the Russians were trying to figure out how to encircle the Sixth Army. They said, well, let's find the weak spot. And what's the weak spot? Wherever the Hungarians and the Romanians are stationed. And so that's how they crashed through and and, and encircled Stalingrad. So these are not happy troops. They were fighting under duress. But yeah, that's a good point.
2: And then then he had the Ukrainians with him. And then I also read that um, something like two-thirds of the SS were made up of foreigners, even though they were preaching the German uh, uh, supremacy.
0: I'm not sure about that one. But the Ukrainians, he should have turned, and he didn't, which is probably his biggest blunder of the war. They caused him to
3: have to go the long way, right? No, but the
0: Ukrainians were willing to join. Yeah. And this is one case where... Interesting, sometimes Hitler actually listened to his advisors. People could yell at him. If you were a, a major general and you'd known him a long time, it's shocking how many times you see people screaming at him and getting away with it. So he sometimes would listen. Uh, but in this case, everybody was unanimous. Yeah. There wasn't a single objective. And he always had his, even his sycophants, uh, I forget which was, Keitel was one of the worst. Even his sycophants were saying you have to, Engage and employ and turn the Ukrainians. There's a half a million of them that want to fight Stalin, that want to fight with the Russians. And he said, "No, throw them in concentration camps and shoot them in the head." And I was like, "You're crazy." Why? That was it be, uh, well, racial hatred. Oh,
3: okay. Yeah, and,
2: and basically, and I, I key, it was foolishness.
0: Think, Go ahead, sorry. I'm
2: sorry, I, and I think the key to all of this World War II stuff was the amount of people who were willing to join either side. I mean, you was either an axis or an ad, or um, or the allies and I think that's what made it such a messed up situation it, uh, In one sense it wasn't just the Germans who had this superiority complex.
0: That's right. Everybody there was a, there was no Elon problem in World War II. Everybody had passion. From yeah, beginning played, to end, they, they were fighting hard from beginning to end, pretty much, except for the French.
2: Just, and we blame it just on the Germans, but it was, the whole world had this complex.
3: Frank, a, good points. Thanks a lot, Frank. Thank you. Take care, brother. French had a
0: fighting force outside, outside of France, the Free French Army under de Gaulle. So they did make an effort to try to save their dignity uh, in a military sense. Because, But still, it doesn't erase the ignominy of, of t- turning over your country voluntarily when you still had plenty of fight left. you know how many ships and tanks and planes were still left that they, they neutralized them? They didn't give them to Hitler, but they neutralized them.
3: One thing that's fascinating to me, the British had to attack French ships at one point, right? Sure. Can you tell that story? They had to attack French ships and kill French sailors at one point.
0: Uh, Murs-el-Kabir on July 3rd, 1940. It was shortly after France had—it was only a month after France had made the deal with uh, with Hitler. And uh, Churchill was a very naval-minded guy. He's from a naval-minded country. And he had been, you know, the Navy minister in World War. So he's a very, he was terrified, obsessed with the French fleet sitting in various harbors uh, in the north, uh, around the Mediterranean. And so after some debate and a lot of people objected, he surrounded a a French fleet at uh, Mers el kabir in Algeria and then on July third, they opened. They killed 1,200 sailors.
3: He demanded surrender, and they didn't. Yeah, surrender. they destroyed
0: three battleships, two cruisers, and killed 1,200 sailors. And that made see a lot of the French at this point are thinking this is a rotten deal we've made with with Hitler. I'm part of this Vichy thing. I'm a constable on patrol, but it's, it's the lesser it to I don't know. I'm, but once that happened, a lot a lot of French Vichy became genuine. Yeah. Suddenly they weren't feeling they were under. Total duress. They still hated the Nazis, but they're thinking, well, I don't hate them as much as I did yesterday. Right now, I think I'm more angry with the British.
3: And then the longstanding conflict between France and Britain kicks in again, probably stirs up that whole thing.
0: In a subtle way, uh, especially in Lebanon, because the French were in Lebanon Uh, Vichy, France, and Charles de Gaulle and the Free French, which I just mentioned, Mm -hmm. they're trying to go into Syria and Lebanon and reestablish the French. But the British are saying, well, we have more military strength. Why don't we go in there instead of you guys? We're allies, right? Oh, yeah, we're allies. Secretly, both sides know that both sides are jousting for post-war colonial clout in, in the Lebanon as opposed to what it looks like, hey, we're just trying to get the job
1: done
3: here. Take a call from Leland. Leland and JP, Jamaica Plain. How you doing, brother?
1: Great, great. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, my question has to do with um, how Hitler arrived at the ancient Indian symbol swastika. Did that have to do with his vision of a thousand-year rule? Who was he in touch with, with that arcane kind of, uh, of, of a vision?
0: Well, believe it or not, a lot of these rituals... I'm not exactly sure what the SWAT... The SWAT sticker is uh, considered a, a, a positive uh, symbol in many countries. It was on the Finnish Air Force. You see a picture of a Finnish airplane, and it's got a SWAT sticker on it. So it has meant different things to different people over the years. I'm not sure exactly where he got the SWAT sticker from, but a lot of the rituals, believe it or not, this is a story, you can look it up, you can find it. Harvard University... This guy that was a famous German goes to Harvard University. Uh, he's a well-to-do German. He gets a degree at Harvard. And he comes back from w- the World War I era and explains to Hitler all the different rituals that the Harvard cheerleaders do. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. It's, it's it's you can It's in several books. I forget the guy's name cuz I haven't rewritten that sex that book in a while. Yeah. But it, it picture the cadence. Yeah. See, ha, he ha, see ha, go Harvard go. Ha. I'm serious. They were they were they were copying the, the the banners and and the red the crimson red they got right. that from Harvard.
3: Right. That is That's a whole new wrinkle.
0: And then, of course, they copied from the ancient Romans and Mussolini. They copied Mussolini also. Uh But in terms of how he structured his authoritarian government, he always secretly admired the Bolsheviks. He always secretly admired Stalin. And he only confessed that to very few people.
3: Leyland, that's a really good point. Thanks, man. Okay, we have four minutes for uh, the... Quick review or the quick promotion of the JFK book, and you have a story that goes along with it.
0: Uh, yes, I just published a book called The USA in the Time of JFK. Uh, that's probably two or three years went into that book, and I cover the assassin. It's, it's general history, but I'll tell you my favorite JFK story. Dean Rusk was a very staid, uh, old-school, southern uh, He's secretary of state, uh, pretty humorless guy. Uh, and so one day he comes in, he's meeting, he's looking for Kennedy in the Oval Office, and who opens the door but little Caroline, who's all of five or six. And she looks up at him and she says, what's going on with Yemen? <laughs> and so Dean uh, Rusk leans over and starts giving this long, well, you see, the rebels have decided they wanted to favor the. And finally, Kennedy's hiding behind the door. He couldn't take it. He burst out <laughs> laughing. You know, that is a good story. That's a wonderful story.
3: Is, uh, can you give me an overview of what that book is like? Does it have a different tone than the World War II
0: Yes. Books? Well, no, it doesn't have a different tone, but what's really good about that Kennedy book is it's focused on foreign policy affairs. It's a very in-depth look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, our commitment to Vietnam, uh, the arms race, and the uh, crisis in Berlin. There's probably 80% of this, but it's a pretty big book. It says 12 font Oh no! Actually, this one is a 16 font. Available now only. Is, in, it's like when someone publishes in vinyl. Yeah. A musician. Well, this is only. It doesn't say it when you look it up, but it's 16 font. This is a big book. The other one's a smaller font, but the county book is big.
3: All right, Mike Donovan, one of the the world's most interesting people. Uh, you have a website where you kind of have a compendium of you, and that includes some of your comedy. Yeah, right? you
0: can see some of the old clips, and I I used to do a Johnny Most bit. I used to close with. And that's on, there's some MP3s up there. It's ComedianMikeDonovan.com.
3: Very good. Now, let's take 30 seconds to remind folks where they can get these books. It's pretty simple. Amazon.
0: Amazon.com, Books, Mike Donovan. And make sure you go to the bottom of the page and fish back because those are World War II books. I keep finding them on, like, page six, seven. Of Amazon, you can't just pop in a couple of letters and happen. Oh, them. and they're available on Kindle. You can sample one of the good ones uh, for five bucks, and then you'll know what I'm all about. Plus, most of these books have a pretty good sample at the beginning, anyway. All right, so you can get a feel for what I do. But all the segments are short. That's my best gimmick.
3: Mike Donovan, can't thank you enough. Please come back. My it's pleasure. My microphone is your microphone. It's WBZ.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
3: A laundry. <gasps> oh, a book club. <sighs>